CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. It's Thursday, December 28th, and your Ben Jarofsky show starts now. Today, Ben welcomes back political strategist, commentator, president, and co-founder of ATE Action, Chris Scott. The Ben Jarofsky Show, a presentation of the Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. You want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink. Well, if you have those questions or more questions, then you might want to go to chicagoreader.com and get the answers. If you want to follow Ben Jarofsky, well, just go to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Civil War Thursday, and here's why. Because the Civil War is in the air these days, literally and metaphorically. So let's deal with the literal first, as in the real Civil War, the actual thing that was fought. Horrendous war, horrific war from 1861 to 1865 in the United States of America. Oh, millennials and Zs, get out your books, your history books. Okay, I'm going to take you back a little bit. And then we'll get into the metaphorical civil war within the Democratic Party and the Republican Party with my good friend Chris Scott. He's standing by uh, to come on and talk about uh, politics, national politics, as we uh, close out on 2023 and head into 2024. But uh, I'm going way back in time to the 1860s. Now, millennials, I was, I know I'm old and wise, but I'm not that old and that wise. I, even I was not born in 1861 when the Civil War broke out. But I read about it, okay? <laughs> I just tease. I love to tease millennials. Like, I'll ask them about some historical figure. Oh, you know what? I'll ask them about a song or a uh, a great book from the, the 60s. And they go, but I wasn't even born then. You know, like, you're never supposed to know about something that didn't happen before you were born? Come on, millennials, get it. Anyway. I've been thinking about the original Civil War because uh, this has been an ongoing theme in the Republican Party for 2023. It actually goes back before 2023, but I feel as though uh, with the growth of Moms for Liberty and Ron DeSantis' attempts uh, to rewrite history, uh, the curriculum of uh, history, American history in the state of Florida, and just the general drift of MAGA as it it takes control of the Republican Party uh, in the last year, uh, in their attempt to, what, I guess whitewash is the word I'm trying to think of, Chris Scott, whitewash uh, American history. So whitewash American history so that racism doesn't exist, that slavery is actually a good thing for black people. Okay, it was a good thing. They got they learned skills that benefited them. <laughs> Insane people. You want to elect them president of the United States again, America? Uh, anyway, so this um, sort of erupted yesterday uh, with Nikki Haley, who's considered like the uh, what? The reasonable person? 
the reasonable person in the Republican primary for president as opposed to the lunatics. Uh, and uh, so the reasonable person in the primary, Nikki Haley, was approached at, I think it was a forum in New Hampshire. I'm doing this off the top of my head. It's always a dangerous thing to do. Uh, someone in the audience asked her about the causes of the Civil War, uh, to which uh, she responded, Ebony, 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 Ebony. Trick question. Started talking about liberty and, you know, uh, freedoms. I don't know where she's going at. You know, liberties and freedoms. It's like, like there's all kinds of coded words there. Like when you say, when a MAGA person says liberty, they generally mean they, MAGA, should be free to say anything they want about anybody without consequences. Even if you're like Rudy Giuliani, just making stuff up about election workers in Georgia. You should be able, you have the liberty, you have the freedom to say whatever you want. You're Alex Jones. You could say a massacre, a slaughter of school children in Connecticut did not happen, even though it did happen. That's what MAGA means when they say freedom and liberty. Civil War had to do with freedom and liberty of enslaved black people. And they don't want to like admit that the black people were enslaved. They kind of want to think, like, well, no, they really liked it. I mean, gosh darn. They would have done it even if they weren't in chains, which kind of like the Republican attitude towards slavery. Uh, so she was asked about the origins of the Civil War. She didn't mention slavery. Uh, and then there was a fallout <laughs> as people go, uh, hello, slavery. Ever heard of it? And uh, she's kind of backed off today uh, and uh, more or less sort of kind of because here's the thing. Republicans are very afraid that if they go too far on the issue of slavery, they'll offend their base. Their base thinks that, like, it's upsetting to little white children to realize uh, that once upon a time there was slavery in the United States of America. Uh, and if you offend little white kids, um, they will not do well in school and stuff. <laughs> I'm just, hey, man, I'm just repeating what MAGA says. So we're not allowed to say that uh, slavery existed. We're not allowed to say that the history that was, was. We have to rewrite history. So I just want to um, inform Nikki Haley and all the other MAGA people out there, all the Democrats of a certain uh, Alexander Stevens, who was the um, uh, vice president of the Confederacy. And this is uh, a speech called the Cornerstone Speech. I urge everybody to check it out. Uh, the Cornerstone Speech. And I, it's such a repulsive speech. I really don't want to read it uh, on the mic. But it state clearly states this speech he delivered in Georgia back in March of 1861. It clearly states that the cornerstone upon which the Confederacy rests, the cornerstone of their movement, is to keep the Negro enslaved. He says it. That was the foundation of the Confederacy. That was the purpose of breaking away from the federal government to maintain their right to enslave people. And I don't know how we're ever going to get beyond, just get beyond the problems we have right now with race, race relations in this country. Unless we just recognize this stuff, you know? It's not like saying every single white person in America is responsible for slavery. It's about saying this is our history. This is what we bring to American history to the turmoil that we face right now. You're going to deny it? I, you listen, I don't even want to read the, the speech. I find it so repulsive. But it's historical fact. So go back and read it. Go back and look it up. You can find it. Just 
Google Cornerstone speech. You'll find it. You'll find the whole speech there. Exactly why the Confederacy broke from the Union. And what was the core issue of the Civil War, which was the Confederacy's insistence that they had a right to enslave people, black people in particular. Nikki Haley, <laughs> Nikki Haley, if you can't acknowledge that, if you can't acknowledge that, in my humble opinion, you don't deserve to be president of the United States. That's just my humble opinion. And you're the moderate of the bunch. You're the reasonable one in the bunch. All right, the other um, civil war is the one, the metaphorical one. In the Democratic Party, Chris Scott is standing by to talk about that at greater length. And uh, maybe he has a few thoughts about uh, the real civil war and Nikki Haley, uh, Chris Scott is the co-founder and president of Advanced Electric Pack and a dear friend of this show. Welcome back, Chris Scott. It's good to be back, Ben. Very good. And just so you can't see this, ladies and gentlemen, he's representing. Uh, he's from Detroit originally. He's got this big M. I, I assume that means Michigan. Yes. His beloved Pistons have lost 27 in a row. <laughs> you Sorry, you didn't have to bring that up. We could have just <laughs> stayed on Michigan trying to make it to the national title game. That's right. Oh, my God. Jim Harbaugh, the Mich University of Michigan. I forgot. That game's coming up. Uh, that's why he's wearing the M. I thought it was just because he's showing his allegiance to the Detroit Pistons, <laughs> even though they lost 27. In a row. Um, all right, uh, Chris, before we get on to the metaphorical uh, civil war uh, the in the Democratic Party, you talked about that in a recent Guardian article. I urge everybody to check out. Um, but let's talk a little bit about just, just your thoughts on Nikki Haley. Uh, and being her inability uh, to just uh, mention slavery as a reason for the Civil War and then the fallout over that. Go ahead. Well, it's the thing of, I think everybody was waiting. Everybody was surprised that Nikki Haley has made the type of run. I think that she's made in the Republican primary, even though nobody's really uh, even come close to Trump. But I think when you look at Nikki Haley, she's somebody that has consistently also put her foot in her mouth throughout her career. So it's like, you know, she's the same person that uh, was given Obama problems uh, back in his time, uh, back in 2008. And so uh, I think it was only a matter of time before kind of the magic, moderate effect of Nikki Haley uh, wore off. And it, it's interesting that it came with something so simple especially you know you talk about her being in South Carolina I mean it's not hard to get that you tried to make it extra cute you tried to put some dressing on it and it was a simple yes or no question like it, what is the cause of the civil war uh and I think what it's a further misstep is look you already got a bunch of bozos running right now in the Republican uh party and how Trump is running as a candidate uh you don't need to give Democrats any more talking points of why Republicans should not be in control yet you know if somehow she makes it to be the VP candidate for Trump, now you have another sticking point. Oh, by the way, your VP doesn't want to acknowledge that it was the fact of slavery was the cause of the Civil War and you have an insurrectionist running as her presidential nominee. Great ticket, y'all. Great ticket. Let me, before I move on to the Democrats, I got to follow up on what you just said because I, I hadn't thought about Nikki Haley as VP to Donald Trump. 
Now, you're a political strategist uh, on the Democratic side, but just imagine you're a political strategist on the Republican side, and Nikki Haley called you up and go, Chris, I need advice. Should I be Donnie's uh, running mate? And I'm I'm thinking about that. Um, we we were going to talk about Donald Trump because uh, obviously uh, you cannot avoid 2023 and 2024 without mentioning him. So just think about it. Donald Trump has more or less pledged to be an authoritarian, a dictator, if you will. OK, uh, lately he's been going around paraphrasing, if not exactly quoting Hitler. So he's kind of letting people know what to expect uh, if he's elected, uh, if he is elected president. If you're Nikki Haley, you got to think. Oh my God. The, you got to think of the consequences of being this man's running mate. So on one hand, it's a real risk. So if, if he wins, well, you get to be vice president uh, forever because he's going to abolish elections in this country and democracy. So you'll always be the vice president unless you enrage him, in which case what he will let it exile you to the American equivalent of Siberia. So, you know, on the other hand, do you want to just openly ally yourself with a dictator who uh, quotes or paraphrases Adolf Hitler. So what would your advice, uh, Chris, be uh, to Nikki Haley if she came don't, to? Don't do it. <laughs> don't you attach yourself uh, to that sinking ship. I mean, and, and I think that's the reality. Everybody who Donald Trump has put in his uh, inner circle, I'm sure, are feeling the excruciating burns of the fallout that is Donald Trump. I mean, everywhere he goes, he leaves awakening his uh, path, and it's uh, just a the orbit of Donald Trump. You just don't want to be in that at a time like now. And I think, you know, if you have any, if you're somebody like Nikki Haley, I mean, think about if you want to have any type of political future do you really want to share a ticket with the likes of donald trump uh who you know in all intensive purposes i think he does end up getting charged with something uh do you really want to hit your rally i mean you see how his own vice president before him mike pence has tried to distance yourself if mike pence is distancing himself the person that believed that you know electrotherapy is the way to get rid of uh, gayness and that person doesn't want to be attached to Donald Trump, that should be everything that you need to know. All right. Since you mentioned Mike Pence and since we are looking back at 2023, uh, let's talk about the disappearance of Mike Pence. Uh, usually, usually or generally or often, whatever word you want to use to modify what will come, the uh, previous vice president of the party that's out of the White House uh, is the front runner. Uh, to be nominated. Uh, Mike Pence, therefore, threw his hat in the ring and was uh, obliterated. Uh, I do not think he ever went beyond 3% uh, in any public opinion poll. Uh, and uh, he was pretty much mocked and maligned uh, from start to finish, even though he had spent four years just being a loyal puppet mm -hmm. uh, to Donald Trump as vice president. Uh, and he could never bring himself to denounce Trump uh, and MAGA, even though MAGA uh, insurrectionists uh, were looking to kill him if he didn't bow to their demands that he make Trump the emperor of our country. That's that's recent history, uh, Americans, that you want to ignore. Talk, in your opinion, about uh, the rise. I don't even know if it's a rise and fall 
of Mike Pence in 2023 and what it means for our country? I just think Mike Pence is one of those political figures that were, they're a blip. They were kind of just there, but they didn't do anything necessarily meaningful. I mean, you think about how many American presidents we've had, how many VPs have actually been notable that people still remember? Like you remember somebody like Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, I think for typically Republicans have done a decent job of having some pretty good notable VP picks uh, in the past. But Mike Pence, I mean, governor of Indiana, the most notable thing from his vice presidency is going to be the fly that was uh, occupying his headspace during the 2020 debate. I mean, that is the most memorable thing you're going to ever remember about Mike Pence. And so, again, we also have to look at the fact of when Donald Trump was choosing vice presidents back then, like who was actually on his short, real short list? I think you were looking at Pence, what, Jeff Sessions, maybe Chris Christie. There weren't a lot of people that really even necessarily wanted to be Donald Trump's uh, running mate. And Mike just, you know, he got it done. I think what's scary is I think Mike would have been more effective if he's a president because he's been a governor before. Uh, Even though it's uh, Indiana, he's still been a governor. Uh, But he's, he's boring. I mean, he's like, he's probably more boring than Bob Doe. And I remember I was a young kid when Bob Doe was running and Mike Pence might be worse than him. Uh, There's just nothing exciting. He has no real message. And so uh, I think he was along for the ride. And hey, I get to write a book and say I was the VP to Donald Trump. And hey, I happened to not get possibly indicted when everybody else went down. Uh, and the best thing for Mike Pence, maybe he gets a better uh, uh, book deal and gets to write a book called The Last Days uh, Inside the Burning House. And that'll be his claim to fame going forward. Uh, let's just let me go back to something you said that shows uh, a hidden prejudice on the part of Chris Scott. Uh, <laughs> it was on a riff about Mike Pence. About he might have got something done because he was a governor, even though it was just Indiana. What? <laughs> no offense. There, there's some great people in Indiana. <laughs> love y'all. Name three. But it's Indiana. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Indiana. You know I love you. Monroe Anderson comes in here every. Uh, Wednesdays from Gary, Indiana, but I don't count Gary as Indiana. I think I view Gary as like the cool part of Indiana. (laughs) Oh, Lord, Indiana, the Hoosier State. So, uh, yeah, Mike Pence was obliterated uh, in 2003 uh, and has no political future. And I would, my venture is that anybody who aligns himself to your point with Donald Trump will ultimately uh, suffer the same fate because there's only room for one person in the Donald Trump universe, and that is Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, how seriously, that said, since we're talking Trump, let's stick with it before we get to the Democrats. How seriously do you take uh, Donald Trump's threats to be an authoritarian uh, president who will uh, wreak havoc, get revenge uh, for the people who, quote, quote unquote, went after him uh, and establish uh, this country as what, like a I don't know what he would call it, uh, but America only uh, sort of fascistic almost state. How serious do you take that? Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump is, I think, 
just the greatest threat to our democracy that I think we've probably seen since, you know, just the entire civil rights era. I mean, the likes of Bull Connor and folks like that, that were really standing their ground. And Donald Trump, I think, pales, they pale in comparison to Donald Trump. I think he is legitimately unhinged. I think if you, I think his level of narcissism, uh, his level of uh, delusionalness, just he is the worst thing to, I think, ever happen to American politics. And so, but when you have somebody that has already admitted they will be that vengeful and vindictive, what do we need to test him for to see if he's already serious? We saw what the little bit that he incited during his time uh, as president. Can you imagine if he really had control of Congress during his presidency, what this country would look like right now? I mean, I think we're talking about, you know, what the Supreme Court did with Dobbs. Dobbs would have happened way sooner. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, you know, we would be in... I don't know what state we would be in. Uh, and I do think if he gets elected president, I think you'll see a lot of Americans actually flee the country because they don't want to try to imagine living through four more years of that type of dystopian uh, world. But he is the, I think, one of the greatest threats to democracy in this world in a long time, not just America in the world in a long time. Uh, it's like if you were to... Uh, mix uh, the arrogance and the hubris of Kim Jong and uh, Hitler together, you might get Donald Trump and that still might not be enough. Because I do think as bad as he is politically, I do think there is a certain method to his madness. There is a certain cunningness even within all the narcissistic uh, tendencies that he has. I don't think he is completely like just insane. I think he knows precisely some of the things and how to game uh, the system. Because even a bank uh, businessman that has gone bankrupt four or five times, you still got to have to figure out how to work on your way to get bankrupt four to five times. And so there's a certain cunningness that he has that you have to be wary of and the last point I was saying is the way that he has almost made himself this martyr type candidate for his acolytes, uh, MAGA Republicans, is again, the, the last time I think anybody, you think about Mussolini, you think about Hitler, you think about uh, fascism in Cuba, like those are what you think of. Uh, and how this man has kind of propped himself up and gotten his own followers to buy in. Like, if you convict this man, we actually have to think about, all right, what is the cost of us doing justice here? And God, what type of scary day in America when we're asking ourselves, what is the cost of holding a president accountable and the fact that you have to have that conversation once again? And go figure it's a Republican once again that we're having the conversation of. Yet somehow we keep letting them roar and they keep doing the most morally bankrupt stuff of our times every single time. 
so let's get into that. Just talk a little bit about the method to his madness. Because while you were on that riff, I was agreeing with you. And uh, some of the see, there's just some comedians I've I've listened to. They go, Trump's the funniest president we've ever had, the funniest politician we've ever had, and it's true. When I separate the caricature of Donald Trump from the policies of Donald Trump and from the hate of Donald Trump, I'm like I'm, I shake my head in disbelief at how bizarre he is in a comic way. It's funny like some of the speeches he's given and some of the antics he does. And he gives me speeches. I used to talk all the time back in the day when he gave those big speeches, those big MAGA rallies he would have. uh, And he would throw the papers in the air one by one. And I was like, that is the weirdest thing. I've never seen, I've never seen an elected official act like such a clown, you know, and uh, it's kind of in its own way. It's kind of funny. All right. Um, But uh, there seems to be, there seems to be like this, devious sense of what he has what he has to do to accomplish what he wants that has been totally underestimated by his opposition uh so what do you think the method is to his madness well it's the thing of i pride myself on being a even though i'm democratic strategist i'm a strategist first and i think the biggest thing with anything with strategy you don't just study your size you study what the other side is really good at doing and what i think what is scary about Donald Trump is he tapped into something that I think most politicians never really uh, uh, realize. But, you know, the just the role of going for politics in this country, it's a it's a pageantry. Uh, we really put on a pageant uh, when we run for president or we run for uh, Congress. The American people, while they want uh, their elected officials to get their life better they also want to be entertained they want to fall in love they want to feel like they could have a beer what is the thing that people always said about george w bush they felt like they could sit down and have a beer with them trump gives off this he has the elitism lockdown that he gives off that smugness so he attracts that crowd but then his base is like the you know co-worker in west virginia that felt like okay, he's speaking to me. He's relatable. He sees me. He he uh, talks to me. And what I think people underestimated, and I'd say myself included, I think, you know, we all thought it was funny when he was up there on the debate stage until he literally started picking people apart. And I think you forget of what we watched on TV for so many years and why so many people like Donald Trump in the first place. And he just brought it to politics. Uh, He didn't really do anything different. He's been him the whole time. And he just introduced a new element to the system that the system wasn't consistently used to seeing. And he was able to exploit it better than anybody outside of, you know, what, JFK, uh, Obama? I mean, again, the thought that he is so menacing But to a degree, you have to speak of him in the same way that we would talk about the rise of the JFK and uh, Barack Obama in the way that they inspired their followings. He's done the same thing, even if we don't like the following and the actions that is coming out of that. I agree with you. When when you first made that comparison, where's Chris going with this? But then I I completely agree with you uh, in terms of what he represents to his followers and their cult-like allegiance to him. 
yes, he has achieved as much as Barack Obama or JFK did in inspiring that cult. Uh, and when you break it apart, to your point, uh, and look at what the uh, overall projection is, like the, the the sense of greater purpose that uh, JFK or, or Barack Obama was trying to inspire people to reach, as opposed to just hate. And I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to say this last point on that, in that Donald Trump has arguably been the most impactful political figure we've ever had before. And the way that he influenced policy methodology within his own party, he completely got the Republican Party, whether or not they liked it, to reshape who they were, to speed up how aggressively they went at things. I mean, he, I hate it, but he is a culture changer. No, think about it. Just think about this while we're on this riff. Barack Obama was elected in 2008 uh, by appealing to uh, what draws us together, the commonality of America, no matter what their background, no matter what their <clears throat> their race, their religion, you know, where they grow up. There are no red states. There are no blue states. That was his message. It lasted... Uh, <laughs> It lasted eight years. He got elected, reelected, but by the there was such such a cynical rejection of that theme that we elected the exact opposite. Donald Trump, who uh, preaches hate and goes down and brags that about uh, how he has Hispanic voters in Texas voting for him because they agree with him that they hate immigrants coming in, even Hispanic immigrants. They in the city of Chicago, you see it. The Hispanics on the southwest west side protesting Venezuelans coming into the community. Chinese Americans protesting. So Donald Trump, I believe you're correct. I believe Donald Trump understands America in a way that Barack Obama didn't and has achieved a certain longevity by appealing to hate. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's a he's a reality TV star to a degree. At the end of the day, and they're taught to know how to tap in uh, to that fame. And and the thing is, where Barack brought us to unite things, that is a very thin line between unifying and, and absolutely hating each other. There are a few things that can take tip that scale. And even though he wasn't in office for eight years, you're looking at it, we've had the polar opposite of the Obama effect for the last eight years under Trump, because even after his was, the, it was still Trump's America on the Republican side. That is how much of an impact. I mean, and that's powerful, the fact that he could lose presidency and still be just as strong as he was before. I mean, that you don't see that often. I mean... The only other person I would argue in modern times that was probably a stronger president was probably Reagan. Because um, I think Bush was a lot better with because of his advisors, but it wasn't necessarily Bush. I think there was a certain, you know, Reagan and Nancy Reagan and what they had going down there with Reaganomics. They were... Clearly, the Republicans are on to something when they see, send somebody from a television background to be a candidate 
they know what they're doing with that. Yeah, it's a salesman. They, they literally build a product. Absolutely. I was saying when you were doing, uh, Ronald Reagan was a pitch man. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was, uh, after he was an actor, he would get on TV and tell you, hey, you should use this product or that product will make you this, that, or the other thing. And so America loves pitchmen, you know, or a country of consumers. Uh, and uh, Donald Trunk, Trump, Trunk, Donald Trump was a reality TV star. He was a caricature. Uh, and uh, he personified fabulous wealth. America's loves wealth. I want to be rich. Chris, I just got a bad way of going around it about it. So you're, yeah, America fell for it. Like, oh, he must be smart because he's rich. How many times you heard that one, Chris, growing up? Uh, he must be smart because he's rich. You know, uh, this belief that we have that be- if you're rich, there's something superior about you. And Donald Trump, you know, all those, you mentioned the, the business failures, but he's still rich, still got the, the, the toilet that's gold. You know what I'm saying? I mean- Let's go. We, we forgot about, you know, him taking out the ads for Central Park 5 uh, because, you know, he comes up with a catchy uh, phrase, you are fired and takes America by storm, uh, you know, on Sunday nights with uh, somebody named Amorosa and it's primetime television. I mean, uh, again, he saw a flaw in the system and he exposed it for everything. Um and I, I think the bigger thing is, how does politics evolve and change after Donald Trump and all the holes that he poked within the system? I mean, I think he showed how fragile our government and our how much we thought we have progressed. I think he showed us how fragile we actually are with some of that progression. By the way, I, I'm, I'm going to... Uh push back a little bit on something you said uh we forget about the central five because of the reality tv show i think what he did with the central park five is uh at the heart of his success so think about this it was a horrific uh, crime committed in central park in new york i want to say around 89 or so chris i can't mm-hmm. remember that date. uh a jogger was raped uh and the attitude was someone's got to pay for this it was vengeance it was just someone's got to pay for this uh, and the police rounded up, what was it, uh, five black uh, youth, but they're teenagers. And Donald Trump took out the full page ad in the newspapers in New York, essentially like capital punishment for them, kill them. And it turns out they didn't do the crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, oops. <laughs> but I think a lot of people, Chris, that's the appeal. Like he's not politically correct. He's telling what we think. We think is we're mad right now because it's horrific crime. We think someone uh, should pay for it even if they didn't do the crime. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of people in this country respond positively to that uh, appeal. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like you work for Kim Fox as a political strategist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Think about it. The hate for Kim Fox. Mm-hmm. And so now she was able to win reelection. Thanks to the brilliance of Chris Scott. But uh, just think about the hate there was for Kim Fox and people blamed Kim Fox for things that had nothing to do with I've seen few candidates go through more than what I saw Kim uh, go through and just what the state's attorney has done to maintain the fortitude and the type of attacks that she's had throughout her career. I mean, you see it break politicians all the time. 
when the attacks kind of ratchet up, the higher and higher you go. And also the more success you have, you're also oftentimes uh, gonna be uh, attacked. But I think, you know, to bring it back uh, home the full circle, Donald Trump did it with a party that was always going. I think that party had a void and was looking for an identity. Uh, even if it's not going to be the long term, he filled a void in providing them the next chapter of what their identity was going to be, be after post Bush. And I think Republicans were searching for that coming out of the Obama years of how do we salvage ourselves? How do we get it back in? You know, it took us to the depths of everything that we thought we were leaving behind, but he did restore a sense of identity in one way or another, whether or not you're a Republican that supports him or you're a Republican that's fighting against him. He gave their party a sense of pride that they I don't think they have felt in a little while. He gave the party a what the, that word sense of pride that no matter what wing of the party are you are I don't know if they fully felt that I mean you think about uh, the, the idea of like the evil galactic empire in Star Wars I think you know you always got your Palpatine and Mitch McConnell uh, but the way they were operating I mean he really got them back to marching all in unison again following from the same uh, playbook in a way that we always talk about Republicans do a better job at recentering themselves much quicker than we as Democrats do that. Uh, I, um, uh, I, I always think Republicans uh, have an advantage uh, over uh, Democrats in one basic way. Um, they're not trying to unite uh, black and white America. Mm-hmm. I feel that's a huge that racial divide in this country. And that's how we began the show with uh, slavery is so huge and so challenging. And Republicans like, oh, I don't care about it. I don't I'm not even pretend I care about it. I'm going to in fact, I'm going to exploit it. I'm going to put up black people that say the worst thing about black people. And it is appeal to white people. And it's like, <laughs> that's how I'm going to deal. With it. I'm going to put Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court and he's going to eviscerate affirmative action programs. That's how I'm going to deal with affirmative action. Mm-hmm. You follow what I'm saying? Uh, Chris, so I always feel they have an advantage uh, over Democrats. I mean, um, they just, they've always, at least modern times, I, I hate to say it, they've had the better backbone. I mean, just plain put, they're willing to do the things that we're not willing to do. They'll get in a fist fight when we don't want to get in a fist fight. Uh, they will win the ugly race when we don't want to win uh, ugly. And it's very true of, again, uh, I think Democrats are getting at a better job of learning what fall in line means. And when I say fall in line, I don't mean you just blanket fall in line, but Republicans will fall in line when it's time to show up in a way that we, you know, I think it's part of what we're going to talk about later of they will hold their nose to maintain their power. Mm-hmm. Um, we won't always do that. Uh, and I think vice versa, when you're a big tent party, and you're saying you're trying to unite. Yes, you can try to unite, but you also got to learn to be okay when there's certain times you're not going to be able to unite and that has to be okay. 
And you have to be okay with overall still building enough of a coalition. And I think that's the key for the Democrats going uh, into next year. Look, you're not going to unite everybody after this uh, Israel-Hamas issue. That's not happening. But can you re rebuild or not even rebuild, but re-energize enough of your coalition that you still get enough output that you need? Well, that is the clear wedge issue that Democrats are facing right now. And you articulated it uh, in the article that was in The Guardian. Uh, shout out to The Guardian. Uh, when their reporter was looking for someone who knew what was going on in Democratic politics, he did the same thing I did. He called Chris Scott. And uh, so, yes, I urge everybody to check out the article. But that is the wedge issue that Democrats are facing as uh, 203 ends, 2023 ends, and we head into 2024. Uh, and that is the Democratic response uh, to uh, Israel's war against Gaza, with this war against Palestine. And I've heard both sides of this uh, story a million times. Uh, I've grown up with this, uh, more or less. And um, I don't know, uh, Chris Scott, this is a challenge for the Democratic Party uh, heading into 2024. Uh, it's perhaps uh, the greatest challenge they're facing. And um, I don't know, what's your, your thoughts about how uh, prepared the Democrats are uh, to sort of find some kind of way of getting both factions uh, to unite around the Democratic Party? So I think where I am is I'm optimistic and I'm nervous at the same time. I'm optimistic because I feel like Better than any time recently, I think we have a clear roadmap of how we need to win. Again, I think there, and I'll start, I start there because I think there's this conversation since the Obama years consistently of, we need to get the Obama coalition. We need to, and we say this, but what does that really mean? You getting back together the Obama coalition. And I think, you know, it looks like 2022 of why you had so many states do the right thing uh, when it, democracy was on the line in 2022. Uh, but getting the Obama coalition, it isn't just saying you need to do it. It's taking the steps that it takes to put that coalition together for that coalition to act the way that it acted in 08, uh, the way that it acted uh, in 2012. And so uh, I'm optimistic about that part, but I'm nervous because I look at how this year has gone. Democratic fundraising is down uh, in a way that I haven't seen it down like this going into a presidential of like donors are just taking longer to wake up. That makes me nervous because you don't still you don't see that struggle on the other side uh, in the same way. Uh, I think what also makes me nervous is the idea of us possibly going through a brutal primary season uh, if we really see a lot of these progressives and moderates face off uh, over the wedge issue. I'm worried about that and what that means for what resources do we have for later? Because when we talk about having resources later, uh, again, you want to win the Obama coalition, you need to show up before August. Uh, and that can't be the first time that you start putting resources into black and brown and young voters like it's a little bit late at that time. Uh, and especially, I think, when you have a wedge issue like that, you really got to start doing that coalition work in the springtime if you want to uh, re-engage and re-motivate those voters to still be on your side. Because the thing is, the Democratic 
Democrats have a base that you could win in places like Georgia, Texas, consistently. You have good numbers uh, there. But again, we do a very bad job, I think, of educating our voters a lot of time on what we've actually done for them. And so I think when you're talking about who is the base of our coalition, those are also, you know, a lot of the middle class and stuff. How many of those voters actually feel like their life got better during that time? And so that's the other argument that we have to make is, will we make the argument the way that we did in 2022 of what's at stake and what can we actually do for you if you put us in charge? And I think, you know, from the national why not point out what some of the states just recently done uh, having full democratic control? Let's look at a state like uh, my home state of Michigan of this is what it can look like if you give us control, vice versa. Let's look at Ohio, who has had their last two speakers indicted. This is what it can look like if you let them keep control. Do we want that at the national level? Go and make the case. Uh, but give your base their credit and actually work for the damn vote. Uh, you in the uh, uh, the article uh, in the Guardian, you pinpoint certain primary fights. Uh, I personally believe a primary fight uh, is a healthy thing for a party. Mm-hmm. Uh, it forces it to to address new issues. Uh, it brings new voters. It has the potential to bring new voters in. The problem, of course, is if they become the fights become so um, vicious. Uh, then the voters tend to make the <laughs> the other faction of the party the enemy. Mm-hmm. I, I, even long before um, this, this current uh, war between Israel uh, and, and Palestine, and even before this, I've had uh, lefty Democrats tell me, I'm through with the Democrats, and just fill in the blank, uh, whatever Democratic candidate they were talking about, because they lost, mm-hmm. and losing is painful. Uh, it's very difficult, and there's a sa- a sour taste in your mouth. Uh, and then the tendency is just to s- reject uh, absolutely uh, everybody uh, that had anything to do with your loss, and then you just don't want to get involved anymore. Right? And that so that's the the potential uh, downside uh, to a primary fight. But you pinpoint some of the, let's talk about those the good and the bad, and the healthy and the unhealthy part of a primary fight. Let's say like just one that you pinpoint uh, Jamal Bowman versus George Latimer uh, in New York. Uh, that's a, that's one of the races that you pinpointed in the guardian. Uh, talk a little bit about that and what's, you know, sort of what at stake there. Well, I think it's just uh, when we're looking at the squad and the squad adjacent, uh, I think they, I think some people will look at, uh, will try, if they're getting primary, they'll try to say, well, they haven't gotten anything passed. I think, one, their voices and the issues they've spoke up on and the times they've held their ground have been instrumental. Again, I think if a lot of people look at it, you don't get Bill back better if you don't have uh, progressives uh, from the squad fighting the way that they fought uh, to get the terms that they uh, help Democrats reach uh, with that. And so I don't have a problem having primaries. And and I it annoyed me even when the squad was coming up because I was like, since when did we become so worried about primary each other? If you're the better candidate, just win. Like, but a democracy isn't one way of rule all the time. You have to change 
who's representing. You got to get different thought. You got to get different experiences. Otherwise, are we really building the most beneficial and progressive democracy that we can have at this time? So I don't have a problem with the primary. What I have a problem with is when the primary becomes vindictive because, you know, because she said that now I'm doing this. Uh, and so I think, you know, I'm sure a lot of moderates will sit on. And it's interesting because I consider myself uh, more progressive, but I definitely came up in politics a lot more moderate, uh, uh, you know, in my upbringing. And so but when we look at this and what's at stake this year and we're talking about. You're mad at somebody like Rashida Tlaib. When you look at her background, she's not white. She's from the Middle East. Why is it a surprise that she is boisterous the way that she is? If she's not going to speak up for her people, who else are? And you expect her to, you know, speak about it in the same way? It hits for her a lot different uh, in that. And you talk about even where she represents in a city like Detroit of, you know, part of her district, huge Palestinian and Middle Eastern uh, community within that district, which, by the way, you those are generally Democratic votes that if they don't vote, Biden has a much harder time winning Michigan now if those people don't want to vote. And so I, when we make it personal and we alienate because somebody had a difference of opinion how are we any better than what we're saying the other side does? Because that's what we watch them do on a consistent basis. If we can't have a healthy fight about it without it becoming vindictive, why are you talking about spending $50 million to out another Democrat in a year like this? And I'm not ever going to say you know, somebody like Henry Cuellar, of course, progressives are going to uh, uh, primary him. If you look at his scorecard, he's a Democrat in name only. I don't know why we're upset about that type of Democrat, the blue dog Democrat getting primary that doesn't show up on a regular. Joe Manchin is not advocating for the big tent issues of the party on a regular basis. So why are we crying over that? But going after the Cory Bushes, your Rashida Tlaibs, when you got, we completely botched 2022 in the New York redistricting and probably should have had Congress already. And just guys, where's your focus at? You got to be better than that. We got to keep our eye on the ball. And that's where, again, that's where my nerves are. Because are we going to waste spending money on things we shouldn't be wasting money and we can better put our money and efforts in someplace else? If, put it to the side, we can go back to waging wars and primaries against each other in 2026. Uh, this year, unless the person is an absolutely god-awful Democrat, Stop spending money on it and let's focus and get our eye on the ball and take care of the game before we lose the game as a whole. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. Uh, we're, I mean, we're, it's fascism is on the ballot in 2024 if Donald Trump is a nominee. And Democrats, 
whether they're pro-Palestine or pro-Israel, should realize that. And um, I know it's easy for me to say, because I'm not getting bombed, okay? I, I recognize the fact. Uh, but I had another guest last week that said, sometimes the world is filled with contradictions and you just got to learn to deal with it. Uh, and you, you keep fighting for it. And that, that fight within the Democratic Party to shift its position a little bit uh, on uh, the Middle East, on Israel and Palestine is an ongoing, going, go, ongoing effort. But, folks, fascism is on the ballot in 2024. You're going to hide it. You, you you're going to pretend it doesn't exist. OK, but it's the reality. It exists. Go ahead. Chris. Yeah, it's, it's just. It's what uh, former President Obama said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing some, when we had uh, the reunion weekend in Chicago just about a month, a month and a half ago. And he was like, you know, you can condemn anti-Semitism and also call for a ceasefire in the same breath. Those two things can coexist with each other. Yeah. And I think I think if there's anything is if the Democrats are really going to get the power the way that we could seize power, we have to be able to learn that two things can coexist at the same time. We can have opposite opinions and still work in lockstep mm -hmm. together. See, but we just can't be completely horrible on those yeah. opposite ends of opinions. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and that's where the Republicans are so hypocritical. I mean, and they don't care. They 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 indulge that hypocrisy. So I get fundraising appeals all the time from various Republicans uh, talking about uh, the how the um, those three presidents of the universities, Harvard, MIT, and Penn, were anti-Semitic, and they didn't stand up to anti-Semitism. We'll stand up to anti-Semitism. Like, you're the party of Nazis marching to Virginia. You were hiding under the bed for that. Come on. You think the public's stupid? Well, I guess you do think the public's stupid. You know, the party of Nazis marching to Virginia cannot be the party that's standing up for... <laughs> to protect jewish people in america i'm sorry man you're just trying to exploit like hate that's what you're trying to do that's all you're trying to do republicans go ahead chris yeah the thing is like this look the, when we talk about israel and middle eastern conflict i don't see that issue going away i think that's always i i wouldn't be surprised to see that become a bigger issue uh, as time goes on within the Democratic Party, when you think about consistent wedge uh, issues for factions within the party. Um, but I think when we look at next year, no, we cannot make uh, light of that. Uh, and I think that's something that has to can continue to be addressed in the new administration. But also, let's look at what we have staked domestically we have still the fallout of Rome. We still have the fact that, uh, you know, I feel like we're one or two pieces of legislation away from the South seceding uh, again, the way they're going after book bans in a way that they're uh, enforcing the fallout of Roe. Uh, we have too many states that have repealed voting rights, taking us back to where we were. 
uh, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, and then we have the issue of the economy that I think has kind of taken a backseat more than what uh, we're used to. But I think by the time we get to election day, the economy still makes it back to net, the top two issues. And the reason why is we haven't fully made people whole again after COVID. We haven't figured out how to even bring back all of our businesses. That way they can be even stronger. And so we have real issues here domestically that it is very clear that if one person gets in, all of those issues get 10 times worse. If another person gets in and you give them Congress, we can actually work on some of these issues over the next four years. That's what we're talking about. And I think for Democrats, it's not of it's we don't have problems, but make that case. That's the case that we're making. There is, it's not just that be fearful of what you get with them, but rightfully you should be fearful. But look at what we have been able to do when you have given us just a little bit to work with. And imagine what we could do if we could actually focus on the work that we need to get done domestically and put together a government or at least, you know, whether or not you like Biden or not, give Biden a full Congress and uh, uh, without, you know, being worried about votes going uh, being siphoned off or somebody not voting, give him an actual strong Congress and let's see what actually gets done over the next four years. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, and I'll just, uh, I'll close down this conversation by pointing out the obvious. There are so many variables, so many unknowns ahead of us as we end 2023 and head into 2024. Chris, and I know you know this. It's just so many things you can't predict. This is so obvious what I'm saying, but it's just, I mean, you have uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are way up there in age. I'll leave it at that. Uh, Lord knows what the next few months are going to uh, show. There's Donald Trump's, uh, we didn't even talk about his uh, legal troubles. We talk about that a lot in this show. So I felt we could go one show without doing it. Uh, but he's, you know, he's got four separate uh, cases that uh, he's fighting. Uh, the Supremes have to weigh in on the Colorado uh, decision. Are they going to uphold it? I personally believe that the Supremes uh, will uh, throw the Colorado decision out. I don't think there's any way the U.S. Supreme Court will take a step. I'm going to ask Chris Scott to take a prediction on that one in a little bit. So the point is uh, there are so many um, unknowns uh, that are in the universe as we head into 2024. It's really hard to kind of make a have like a strong sense of what the world will look like uh, a year from now i'm hoping the world for a year from now will not have donald trump as president-elect of the united states um uh, but uh all right uh with that questionary note i'll i'll ask you to make a prediction as we close 23 and go into 24 very simple prediction in your humble opinion chris scott will the u.s supreme court uh, uphold the Colorado decision and bounce Donald Trump from the ballot, or will they find some kind of wiggle room to <laughs> uh, slip out of and keep him on the ballot? Go ahead. I think they will try to punt on the issue as long as they can. And I know that's not a simple yes or no, but I think that's what we're already seeing. I think the Supreme Court 
as much as it is a political court now and is clearly biased, I think even they don't want to touch this issue because they know the type of precedent and what can happen from as a fallout from that if they pick a side on it. So I think they will try to punt it as long as they can and hope some other mitigating factor gets involved uh, before they have to weigh in. I mean, it may be, heck, maybe, you know, the Court of Appeals will do what they don't want to do, and so then they really don't have to do anything. Oh, my God, what a wimpy move that would be. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like the Court of Appeals uh, somehow or other – uh, no, I think they're going to entertain Colorado. It's the immunity uh, immunity uh, issue that they're kicking to the Court of Appeals. But Lord, 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 I could say like, uh, we don't want to deal with this. You're right. Like, let's say <laughs> heck of a profile in courage, Supreme Court. Way not to have those knees buckle, Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito. Actually, I think those two are ge- gearing up. Uh, well, and can we talk anyway. about just? I know we can't talk about it, but the the way that Justice Kentanji Brown got threw into the fire and has just emerged unscathed is something remarkable because she has not had a break since becoming a justice on no. our Supreme Court. No, she's uh, no, absolutely. I mean. It's the, I mean, here we are again. If you're facing uh, the end of democracy as we know it in our country, then that's what we're facing, whether you want to admit it or not, America. If you're facing it, the Supreme Court, for better or for worse, better or worse, is sort of the last stand. Mm -hmm. That's it. I mean, all these issues come before the Supremes. So if the Supremes want to allow Donald Trump to be a dictator, and throw out democracy and throw out our safeguards, they'll do it. And if they want to take that stand, uh, as unpopular as it is with MAGA, even if they subjects them to death threats uh, and their family to death threats, which is how MAGA responds, Chris, you know it. Mm-hmm. When MAGA doesn't get something likes, and they start threatening the lives of people. They just threats you, your home state, Michigan. Oh, we're going to kidnap Whitmer because we don't mm-hmm. like her. You know, that's how MAGA goes. That's where we are right now in America. Yeah, so you're on the Supremes. You're going to be, you can't duck and dodge it, Chris. She wanted to be on there. She wanted the job. I'm not feeling sorry for her, Chris. I'm sorry. Anyway, all right, Chris, it's a a real pleasure talking to you. I hope you have a really healthy, happy new year as we head into the New Year's. Uh, And Alex, if you're out there listening, Chris's partner in crime, you're coming on next. No ducking and dodging, okay? (laughs) I don't want to hear about it. I'm busy, Ben. No, no, no. I just had to throw that little shout out, Chris, to Alex, who's been ducking and dodging. No, no, she had a legitimate excuse, right, Chris? She couldn't come on today with, right? Yep. All right. Uh, Thanks so much, Chris, for coming on. It's a blast talking politics with you, and I'll see you in the new year, all right? All right, Ben. See you in the new year. Very good. That's Chris Scott. Also want to thank the other Chris, uh, producer Chris, for doing an outstanding job. He always does an outstanding job. Uh, Chris and Alex agree. Hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can always catch up on previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, read columns from Ben Jarofsky, read columns from other great reader writers. Say that five times fast. Great reader writers, great reader writers. No, I'm not going to do it. I'll mess it up. But you won't mess this up. Follow Ben on Instagram at Benny J Show. Don't forget, like, subscribe, and follow the Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.